Why, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with pureandsimplebible.com, and I am still thankful that you're here, grateful to share this conversation with you. I love getting to interview preachers and teachers. It's a great way to look into their mind. Uh, The way I kind of see it is, imagine somebody was preaching a sermon, and you had the ability to raise your hand at any time and ask them a question, maybe something you didn't understand or something you wanted to elaborate. Uh, I hope that this feels like that for you, that, that we get the chance to dissect and dig deeper into the scriptures. And so these conversations, they're just so helpful for me. It's a, it's a dream come true to get to uh, produce these and, and have these conversations. I hope that they're helpful to listen to and that they're easy to listen to. So uh, last week we were interviewing Brother Bob Loudermilk, and we're continuing that conversation Brother Bob was teaching us from the book of Acts about the conversion of Saul. We looked at the narrative of it and uh, some really dynamic teaching and storytelling about Acts chapter 9. Now, this week we're going to look at applications from Saul's conversion. And uh, Bob has outlined some really neat uh, applications for us to consider. And I think this conversation is going to be very helpful for you. If you take notes, man, I, I really think it'd be good to have these written down in your Acts 9, uh, if you have a journaling Bible or if you have a notebook that goes along with your Bible reading, have your notebook ready. Take some notes down because I think these will be very helpful. Let's jump right back into the conversation, shall we? So we're looking at some lessons to be learned now. That's one of the great things about this is we can both experience the narrative, but then also return and go back through the narrative and and make application and... uh, in your notes, you have several excellent points that we can use to improve ourselves spiritually. So I'm wondering if maybe you can take us through them point by point and um, help us improve. Well, I come up and there's probably many more, but for myself, I came up with eight lessons that, uh, that helps me. Okay. And the first lesson is a person can be conscientious and religious, but still be wrong. You know, Saul uh-huh. was a religious man. He was sincere. He had commitment. He thought he was right. But what? He was misguided. Right. He was wrong. You know, it reminds mm-hmm. me of uh, Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. And mm-hmm. Paul even, you know, wrote or said later in Acts 23, 1, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That's an amazing statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second lesson, Jonathan, is uh, that the Lord expects radical conversion. He demands a radical change in our lives. Uh, you look at Saul's conversion, it was radical. He didn't hesitate, but after he came into contact with, contact with Jesus, he did a 180-degree turn and gave up everything. You use the word radical. Uh, sometimes it's used in different contexts. I'll show my age, which, or at least my specific generation. We use radical with uh, turtles who have been mutated by slime and enjoy eating pizza and fighting Kung Fu or their ninjas. And they would say radical. Uh, it was a Saturday morning cartoon that I watched growing up as a kid, um, teenage mutant Ninja turtles. But that was a phrase I learned from these turtles. Uh, I don't think it's probably what you're talking about. So maybe you could spend some time explaining what radical means. I, I was looking up the word radical in the dictionary, very different from the usual or traditional extreme favoring extreme changes and existing views, habits, conditions, and so forth. So I got to thinking about it from the perspective of the world. Jesus was radical. 
His mm. teachings and his demands are radical. They don't make sense to the fleshly mind. And uh, he was very different from the usual and definitely different from the traditional at that point. So I got to thinking about that and I got to looking at some verses that from the fleshly side, from the human side, it sounds radical. For example. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a few examples? Okay. Let's look at Luke uh, 6. Look at 27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's pretty radical, but he, uh-huh. it's even more radical. To him who strikes you on one cheek, turn the other also. Mm-hmm. Uh, verse 30, give to everyone who asks you. From him who takes away your goods, don't ask them back. I mean, it just goes on and on. Luke is filled with them, you know, unless you hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, your own life. You cannot be my disciple, Luke 14. Mm-hmm. That's uh, a little radical. And yeah. uh, and then kind of the ultimate is Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So I, I say kind of tongue in cheek, you want a radical lifestyle to the young folks? You want to live radically, <laughs> then connect to Jesus and follow him. You'll be yeah. made fun of, you'll be persecuted at times, but you'll join the ranks of the radical. Now, here's a point that can be made connecting to that. Yeah, Sometimes, you, you just said young people, but um, I think sometimes people want to be different just for the sake of being different. You know, right. They want to be a peculiar people just because they like being peculiar. But it's not about being radical or peculiar for radical or peculiar sake, right? right. It's it's exactly. about it's about serving the Lord and l- doing that often leads to radical life change. That's right. It may be perceived as radical by others, but you're following the Lord. But when okay. we follow the Lord and we follow his decrees, there'll be times we'll make be fun of. There'll be times we'll be persecuted. Uh and then I, I like to say that we may be considered radical, but we also have an over-the-top radical reward in heaven, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. If you're, it is a uh, extreme. Uh, using your definition that you used earlier, it is extreme in the amount of reward that we get based on what we deserve, isn't it? That's right. That's a that's a good word. Well, uh, let me sum it up real quick. I know you said you got eight points, but we'll maybe. Uh, sum them up a few times. Uh, we can learn from Saul, turned into Paul, that one can be conscientious and religious but still be wrong. And uh, that point got away from me. But I wanted to share this scripture. When Paul looked back on that life and, and on his brethren, he said in Romans 10 verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Mm, yes. So I wanted to share that one. Uh, the second one that we just talked about for a time was that the Lord expects radical conversion. And uh, we see that from Saul to Paul, but we also see a third point. Tell me about the goads. Yeah, you know, in Acts 9 and 5, an interesting statement, Jesus told Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Mm-hmm. Now, a goad, it's, it's translated pricks in the King James Version, but a goad was made by binding a sharp piece of iron to the end of a long, heavy stick. So when you're plowing and the ox is going too slow for you, what do you do? You take Mm -hmm. that goad and you hit him in the legs or hit him in the backside, but make him go faster. Now, a stubborn ox might get irritated and start kicking that goad. (laughs) But if he does, he's only hurting himself. 
Right. You know, he's right. picking something sharp and that's making it worse. And I think that's a beautiful description of what Saul was doing in his, or a beautiful word to describe it, I should say, in his rebellion against Jesus, Jesus, I think, was saying, you're only hurting yourself. You're, you're kicking right. the goads is all you're doing. Well, since we're connecting it to our lives, you know, we're trying to make applications here. You think maybe you could help us uh, conceptualize what a goad might be for us? I mean, uh, how, how can I as a Christian, you know, if the warning is to be careful not to kick against the goads, how could I potentially do that? What am I kicking against in my life right now? You know, as I listen to the Word of God, as I read His Word, as I listen to my conscience as it's directed by His Word, where mm-hmm. am I rebelling? Where am I continuing to sin? I like to encourage people to examine their heart and examine their motives. Is there a secret sin that I'm uh, keeping from everyone and only I know it and the Lord? Yeah. Am yeah. I refusing to repent of that? Am I refusing to make a tough decision? In other words, there those things in our lives where we know we really need to be going in this direction, but we're resisting it is kicking a goad. You know, I'm a pretty stubborn person. Um, when I when I find something that I want to hold on to, and you know, my wife will tell you whether it's you know the proverbial not stopping to ask for directions or whatever the point might be. I can get pretty stubborn, and it often has some ill effect that is far beyond what would have been, you know, happening if I had just been a little bit more humble and, and not so right. full of self. So I get that, that concept of uh, when you're kicking against the goad, you're really only hurting yourself in the end. That's right. And uh, you're not able to kick back on the one who's got it, especially a spiritual goad. Um, I'm going to read First Timothy one thirteen. And this is Paul talking, and he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. How does this, um, how does this scripture connect to kicking against the goats? Well, what I see in this passage is Paul, when he finally realized what he was doing, he did better. I call it when Saul knew better, he did better. He formally mm, okay. was that, but once he realized, he says, I did this ignorantly. I did this in unbelief. So he was kicking the goads, but it was in ignorance. It was in his unbelief. And once he realized what he was doing, he did a turnaround and he completely changed. And certainly that's a lesson for us, you know, that yes. when we know better, are we doing yes. better? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you want to put this in or not, but Denise, my wife, uh, was sharing with me an interview she heard with Oprah, just a side note. And uh, she was telling her story about how she was raised and her mom and how her mom forsook her. And, you know, she went to live with a relative and the horrible abuse and sexual abuse and very open about her story and Mm -hmm. that her mom gave her up to go there. And the interviewer asked her, how in the world, you speak so well of your mom, how in the world can you speak so well of her? And she said, you know, when my mom knew better, she did better. And mm. uh, I, I just think that's a great quote that when we know better, we need to do better. You may that's or may want to use that in the in the lesson about Oprah. No, I do. I do. When we, and God's called us to know better. I mean, uh, Paul 
Saul turned to Paul would preach in Acts 17 that this time of ignorance God has winked at, but now calls on all men everywhere to repent. So we have a privilege and a priority responsibility. I'm not sure what, what description would you want to use, but uh, we need to do better, right? right. We, we don't just need to be poked all the time. Right. Um, I'm looking forward to discussing this next one with you. Jesus feels our pain. This is a lesson we can learn based on what Jesus said when he first encounters Saul. What, what happens in Acts 9? What does Jesus say? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul had said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about that. Why did he say, why are you persecuting me? You know, he's, he's not persecuting Jesus, right? He's persecuting Christians. And what struck me as I reflected on that is anytime you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Christ. That yeah. We're inseparably tied together. I think of what Paul said. It's a beautiful one to me. First Corinthians 6, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Mm-hmm. And there's so many verses that talk about the connection that Jesus has with his followers. And the fact that he said, why are you persecuting me? Shows us how connected he was to his people. First uh, Corinthians eight twelve. when you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Right, right. So, you know, you, you really can't persecute his child without persecuting him. You touch a Christian, you touch Christ. Someone said, no blow struck on earth goes unfelt in heaven. And that's a, that's a beautiful concept. I'm going to, I'm going to try to make a connection here um, to Stephen. You know, Saul was there and his, he, they, they laid their coats at his feet. Um, But my dad actually told me this years and years and years and years ago. Uh, but he said, have you ever observed that Jesus stands at the right hand of God whenever Stephen sees him? Now, typically when you hear about Jesus, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Hmm. But in that scripture, he's standing. Why do you think Jesus would be standing for Stephen? And, you know, I did not have a very discerning mind so he had to explain it to me that he was standing in honor, that he knew what Stephen was going through. He had been persecuted himself, and now here is somebody who is being persecuted for him. And so that that last point you said, that this is what made me think of it. Um, no blow struck on earth goes unfelt in heaven. You know, when Stephen was being killed, Jesus stood because he felt the death blow. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it's just, that's comforting. Right. I mean, I've never experienced that. There's a part of me that hopes I never have to, but I can at least have the comfort in knowing that if I did, that Jesus feels it with me and he's there with me every time. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Um, Here's another point. Again, we'll see if the connection works. Jesus talks to Saul slash Paul three times in the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, the first one is obviously one where he is delivering rebuke and he's upset with him for the damage that Saul has done. 
But have you considered the other two times that he speaks to Paul? I think uh, he, I can't tell you specifically whether at one he may be in prison. Both times he might be in prison. But uh, they're words of comfort. I think one he's in Corinth and he says, don't worry, I have many people in the city. Mm-hmm. But what I find it interesting that this man who at one time needed the Lord's rebuke two times needed the Lord's comfort and uh, is concerned, you know, maybe I'm reading into the the story, but he's concerned um, about what's going to happen to him. And the Lord has to intervene and let him know you're going to be okay. Oh, I, I love that. Yes. I was thinking of the, uh, the case where he's on the ship, you know, in the final two chapters of Acts and, you know, the Lord told him you're going to Rome and it didn't, it didn't matter how many hurricanes hit that ship. <laughs> the Lord said, you're going. And, you know, they'd had all those days and nights where they wouldn't eat. And finally, Paul stood up before those men. They're all wet. The food's wet. And he said, man, he said, it's been all these days since you've eaten. But he said, last night, an angel of the Lord, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, you're going to make it, you know. And I mm-hmm. just think that's beautiful that uh, another case where the Lord communicated to him through an angel and said, you're going to be okay, Paul, you're going to make it. Well, like I said, this, this point about Jesus feels our pain. That's, I could talk about it a long time. I feel like it's so essential for us to know that, that we serve a savior who is relatable and that relates to us based on uh, some of the affliction that, that happens in life. So it's what a powerful point we can learn from Saul's conversion. Tell me about uh, this next point. Uh, as Christians, we must proclaim Christ. What what application are we drawing out from Saul in this? You know, as soon as he was converted, as soon as he became a Christian, what did he do? He immediately, it says, began to preach the very Christ he persecuted. Uh, mm. That word immediately appears in Acts 9 and 20. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And the yeah. whole idea that there was a compulsion, there was something in him that now I can no longer persecute the Christians. Now I have to go and preach and proclaim the Christ that I've just met. Yeah. And uh, I just take from that that we need that compulsion in our own lives you know, to proclaim Christ, to tell our neighbors, our friends, our family, to let them know that Jesus is the Christ. And it's just a, a great motivator. Years ago in the Philippines, when I was there on one of the trips, we were riding along in the van and there was a, one of the brothers who's now deceased. His name was uh, Brother Romeo. And uh, Oh, Romeo Ancia. Yes, absolutely. I'm familiar with him. Yeah, he... Uh, he actually established a church called the Dumpyard Church. And it was literally. <laughs> I'm familiar a, with that too. <laughs> yeah. Literally on a dumpyard where they would have uh-huh. worship. All these people uh-huh. had nothing to eat and they made their living scrounging through the dumpyard. So uh-huh. Romeo goes out there and builds a church. Uh, <laughs> but he was telling me that day, and their English is sometimes difficult to understand, but he was in almost like he was in pain and he was going over it. Bob, I must preach Christ. I, I absolutely must. And it was just like this anguish and this, wow, this, uh, gut wrenching talk to me. And I can't even put it in words, but it really made an impression that uh-huh. that's what we need. You know, we need yeah. to have that compulsion within us that 
we absolutely must do it. And that's what he was communicating. That's good. Romeo was a good man. He, uh, I'm familiar with him. Uh, we, we were brethren connected from afar for several years. I was involved with his work. I was sorry when he passed away. Uh, I want to pick your brain before we move on to the next point. Um, maybe just as a, a some get some preacher wisdom or some um, older brother in Christ wisdom for me, the younger brother. What can I do to hold on to that zeal or fire? You know, I went through it whenever I was baptized, and I've seen other people go through it. But when somebody obeys the gospel, man, sometimes I feel inadequate around them because of how many people they're talking to. They're, they're, they're constantly, you know, they are on fire and then reality sinks in. Maybe it it takes, you know, six months, a year, two, three, or sadly for some, maybe less than six months. You know, maybe it's, there, there becomes a point when one starts to become maybe uh, frustrated or maybe they've just experienced some negativity that's kind of dampened their spirit. But what would you say to me? or others who want that fire, who maybe experienced a, a burst of evangelistic fervor only to be kind of let down a little bit later on. How can we get it back? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind, and you're asking a, a question that I think affects us all, it affects me, and I have to deal with it. And I immediately think of the parable of the sower. You know, you've got the four soils and What does he say? The one thing that gets a lot of us is the cares of this world. You know, like we're talking about on another occasion that many times Mm -hmm. it's not even things sometimes that are sinful in themselves, but they start choking out the word of God, the things in our lives. And we're living Mm -hmm. in a society in a time when so many things can choke out the word of God because there's so much to focus on social media, television, friends, on and on we go. And so that'd be one thing that comes to my mind is making sure that the word of God is living within me, you know, that I'm renewing my mind every day and uh, establishing good habits, you know, to where like Christ, when he took time to get away and be with his father, if we can have that time every day, for me, it's early morning. I I love the early morning for my time in the word, time in prayer, Mm -hmm. start the day. Mm -hmm. Some people, you know, like the evening uh, I heard one preacher say, some people call it manna in the morning. He said, I don't, I guess that's okay. I like a little quail in the evening, but, <laughs> <laughs> but oh, uh, that's good. find time to be alone. And the renewing of your mind is certainly yeah. a, a big one. And then I think one thing that helped Paul remain fervent is he never forgot where he came from. You know, he mm. knew what the Lord had done for him. He knew what he had been and he, he never got over that, and he gave everything for the Lord because he realized how much God loved him. I love the passage where he said, I'm a debtor, both to the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, I'm in debt, yeah. and I think it's that debt of love. He knew what the Lord had done for him, and he had a debt uh, to uh, to give to others. And the other one will save, it's actually the final point of the eight lessons and and we'll get to that and that's the message of transformation and we'll get to that here in just a moment oh good good well i'm going to share luke 7 before we jump into the next point um it's been helpful for me and something that you just 
brought up has uh, brought it back into the forefront of my mind. But in Luke 7, uh, Jesus said, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's two thoughts there. First, you know, people that can remember how great their sin was oftentimes cherish the gospel because they know where they came from. And so they make great personal evangelists. But now I'd like to switch that pronoun to we and not they, because it doesn't matter if you were raised in the church or if you came in after living like a prodigal. All of us at some point have known God's will and in open rebellion have denied him. Mm -hmm. And frankly, my sin versus another person's sin, you know, who am I to judge theirs as superior or inferior or greater or lesser? The fact is, when I meditate, you know, you talked about spending time in the Word and and, uh, renewing our mind in it. Part of that renewal has to be how great of a sinner I was or am and how great of a Savior Jesus is. And when His blood washes away my sins, what else can I do? but live for him and tell others about him. And so uh, yeah. we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that that's a great motivator for me. Someone said the, the ground at the cross is all level. Uh, nobody stands any higher than anyone else. And the old time preachers used to say, you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. <laughs> and, uh, you know, until a person realizes what it means to be lost yeah. That they need a savior, they're never going to come to the Lord. And we need to, like you so well said, you know, never forget that. Never forget where we came from. Saul never forgot it. Okay, let's uh let's jump back in. We're on point number six. God's people will be persecuted. That's uh, an application that we're going to take away from Saul's conversion. What what can I be thinking about whenever I think about that phrase? You think about the persecutor becoming the persecuted. Uh here he had been persecuting Christians. And then we read in Acts 9, 23. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. <laughs> I, that always kind of amazes me when I think about it. He did a total turnabout and then they turn on yeah. him. I mean, he's yeah. their guy. You know, he's been out there in charge of this big mission effort of bringing Christians to prison and so forth. And as soon as he changes, say, okay, now we're going to kill you. And of course, mm. the plot became known to Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. Well, the the point is, we'll be persecuted. Jesus said in John 15, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And uh, you remember Paul's point to Timothy in chapter 312 of 2 Timothy. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, one of the things that concerns me in my own life is if I'm not suffering persecution, does that mean I'm not living godly in Christ Jesus? And I'll turn the table on you and let you respond to that one. Uh, oh man. About. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not used to it. I'm, I'm the one I'm who's taking the questioner. Your here. <laughs> well, um, I, th- there, there's scriptures that talk about, well, if you're going to ask me the question, I'm going to poach a scripture from your from your notes and and maybe springboard off that. Second Timothy three twelve. Yes, 
and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Um, I think maybe there should be the expectation that if I'm going to live radically for Christ, part of that radical change is that those who don't want to live it will not appreciate what I'm doing. Um, John chapter 1 talks about how in the beginning the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh. It was like light coming into darkness, and the darkness did not understand the light. And, you know, um, darkness, the response that it makes to light is violent. You know, it flees. It's not casual. And, and, And so spiritually speaking, what I observe is when I preach Christ to those that don't want to hear it, convicting others of sin is a it's a bitter, bitter pill for them to swallow. Sure. Um, and typically in our culture today, you know, we're, we're called hateful or bigot or, you know, judgmental or whatever it may be. So um, I'm going to say, yes, I should expect persecution, but probably not like in the first century, at least at this point in our, our history and our culture. But I should be expecting to feel confused or hurt or um, sad based on how people might respond to the gospel in a negative way. How'd I do? I think you did good. <laughs> I think of my daughter, Alexis, when she was a uh, freshman in high school, I think. She was on the cross-country team, and you know, you have all the peer pressure and all that. And she was a very, very good runner for a while was their number one runner in the high school uh, and uh, on their team. Uh-huh. But they'd go on these trips on the bus and she was different. You know, uh, she didn't use the same language. She didn't talk right. about all the boys and uh, you know, she bow her head in prayer at the lunchroom before she would eat her meals. And, and uh, she told me, I just, uh, you know, I'm sitting there on the bus by myself. I said that, doesn't that make you feel bad? She said, I just put my headphones on, listen to the Bible, you know, or whatever. Huh. But it was what you're saying, I think, is there was a, uh, that's not the kind of persecution they had in the first century, but she sure felt that something was different. And because, right. she, because they could see light in her, you know, so. Well, brother, we need one another. Number seven. I think this is a great one to go into after talking about being persecuted. Um, what happens with Paul's story or Paul's account and, and how can we relate to it? They're all trying to kill him. And Acts 9.25 says, Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Someone had a sermon on that one time, you know, the basket case or something, <laughs> something along that line. But thank God for Christians who are there to let us down in a basket. Uh, that are, yep. are there to help us in our time of need. Amen. Uh, you know, there's not a whole lot I was going to say on that other than that we truly do need one another. And yeah. uh, thank the Lord those men were there, those people were there to let him down because mm. they were after his life. And there's times when maybe all we need to do is just hold the ropes, let someone yeah. down. You know, it may not be a great big thing in our mind, but. Uh, it's exactly what they need at that moment. Well, little things add up. That's right. You know, so we don't always help each other in the big ways, but 
little ways add up. Sure. Um, our final point. So maybe I could run through the list real quick, uh, just in case somebody's uh, coming in halfway through the episode. Um, we can learn a lot from Saul's conversion, such as, one, uh, a person can be conscientious and religious but still be wrong. Two, the Lord expects radical conversion. Three, be careful not to kick against the goads. Four, Jesus feels our pain. Five, as Christians, we must proclaim the gospel. Six, God's people will be persecuted. Seven, we need one another. And uh, why don't you tell us about this final one, number eight, like Saul, we can be transformed. Well, I get excited when I talk about this one. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The idea of transformation is such a fantastic process. Mm -hmm. But I got to thinking about the first century. Think about if some of the early church members died before Saul was converted. And then they all get to heaven and they see Saul in heaven. Now, Saul was the foremost persecutor of the believers. He's the leader of the Jerusalem Holocaust. (laughs) And they get to heaven and I can just hear someone almost saying, what are you doing here? But uh, (laughs) they weren't alive when he experienced a transformation. Yeah. And uh, there's a passage in Galatians that's really interesting because it gives a picture of Paul before transformation, and then he mm-hmm. writes about it after his transformation. So listen to this. Galatians 1.13, before he said this, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So that's before conversion and before transformation. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on in the same chapter in 23 and 24 after that process. And here's what he said, that they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which he once tried to destroy and they glorify uh-huh. God in me. There's transformation, dramatic changes in your relationships. And when you think about it, all the people that Saul hated became the people that he loved and all the people that he formerly loved and associated with became his enemies. Happened just like that, that fast. Mm. So dramatic changes happen whenever we become a Christian. Now, what really excites me is that even today, we can be transformed into the image yeah. of Christ. Amen. What? What? Uh, maybe we have some scriptures that people could jot down real quick, being transformed into the image of Christ. What do you got for me? I got three. Romans 8 and 10 talks about be conformed to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3, 8, but we all are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, Mm -hmm. just as by the spirit of the Lord. I like Mm -hmm. the idea that he says, not that we are transformed, we're being transformed. Right. It's a process according to that. And then Romans 12 and 2 sheds some light on how we do that, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm Mm-hmm. That Romans 12, 2 passage, you probably already know this, but for those who are listening, transformed is a Greek word. Uh, I think it's metamorpho or something similar to that, but we use it for the the English word metamorphosis. And uh, the idea of the ugly little caterpillar turning into the beautiful butterfly. Uh, So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we've talked about that together uh, previously about the renewing of the mind, but that transformation is uh, dramatic in the same way that the caterpillar is to the butterfly. That's right. Appreciate you bringing that out. 
Now, in addition to a changed character, he got a new name, didn't he? He did. No longer called Saul. Uh, Acts 13, verse 9, then Saul, who is also called Paul. And then pretty much after that, they just called him Paul. Right. uh, The idea that we get a new name when we become a Christian. And that new name is what? Christian, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, brother, this has just been an excellent conversation. Um, I feel closer to Saul, more empathetic with uh, his conversion and and some of the struggles that he had both before and after. I'm wondering if maybe you had a final word as we wrap up the conversation. Sure. Uh, One thing that I wanted to bring out is what was the motive behind Saul's conversion? You know, his dramatic transformation has really perplexed infidelity for many centuries. And Sir George Littleton, he actually lived from 1708 to 1773. And you can look him up, read about him on the internet. He was an Oxford-educated scholar, and he actually served in the British Parliament. Now, when you read about his life, he was initially very skeptical of Christianity. I was just reading about him today, learning a little more about him. And what he decided to do was to do a very detailed critical examination and expose of Luke's record of Paul's conversion. And he believed that he could establish that if Paul's radical conversion was grounded in base motives of self-interest, that uh, he could disprove it. He knew that, you know, there would be no reason to believe it. But after he researched the matter, very, very scholarly, he reversed it and he became a believer. In huh. fact, 1747, Littleton published his book. First, it was published anonymously, Observations of the Conversion of St. Paul, which, by the way, Jonathan, that's still in print after 200-plus years. Oh. That's a rare phenomenon in publishing. But here's what he concluded in his study. He said, The apostle was not an imposter who deliberately advocated that which he knew to be false. Indeed, why would he suffer so much persecution for what he knew to be a lie? Mm. These are his conclusions. Number two, he was not an enthusiast who was given to an overheated imagination. He was a disciplined, logical scholar of the first magnitude. Then the third point he writes in his book that I thought was interesting, he was not deceived by the fraud of others, for he claimed his revelation to be independent of the other apostles. Even his Mm. critics acknowledged his rugged independence. And so one scholar wrote this, a demonstration, talking about Saul turned to Paul, a demonstration uh, sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. And I just thought that's a, a great way to end this study, that here's a man that did not believe and he did everything he could to disprove it. And the deeper he went, the more he was convinced Saul truly did have a conversion experience. He truly did see Jesus Christ. That's great. You may or may not want to use that, but uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I do too. Like I say, I looked him up and started reading more about him today. I just had a little excerpt of that in my lesson. And uh, it's pretty fascinating, uh, his life. In fact, he had another, a best friend that also was a agnostic and 
wanted to disprove it. And uh, he said, well, I'll take the topic of uh, Jesus' resurrection and you take Saul's conversion and we'll disprove it. And they went to these long in-depth studies and they both did it independently and they both became believers. As we <laughs> That's great. Sounds kind of like Lee Strobel's uh, Case for Christ. Yeah. It, I mean, uh, that's like a modern that's right. parallel. Well, brother, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure for me and uh, I've grown from the conversations we've had together. So I'm, I'm so thankful for you, for the work you do. And I pray that God would richly bless you to continue working in his vineyard. Thank you, Jonathan. Keep up the good work. That was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. I love Brother Bob. He is a dear friend of mine from long years ago until the present day, and I've always looked up to him. Uh, he's about my dad's age, and so he is from an older generation, and I've he's just one of my heroes. So thank you, Bob, for coming on and uh, spending some time with me. Very grateful for it. Everybody else, thank you for listening, and thank you for the support. When I hold gospel meetings or I go attend gospel meetings, a lot of times I hear from people at those uh, the encouraging words for the podcast, and they do help. It's very meaningful to hear. It's just validating to know that uh, this ministry is helpful to others as much as it is to myself. So I am thankful for it, and thank you for listening. Now, you can go to the website. I say it every time, and I'll continue to say it. Please go there. Check out all the free resources at pureandsimplebible.com. That's all one word. And uh, all of them are downloadable and usable for free. So, until next week, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.